1: hello and welcome to another episode of history hack Alex who have we got on today oh, I, I am
2: I'm excited today to learn something but I'm also um this one is not going to be easygoing for our listeners. Um We have the fabulous James Scott with us, uh, who is an American historian. So he wrote Target Tokyo, which was about the Doolittle Raid, and he wrote The War Below as well, which is the story of three submarines that battled Japan Um, as far as the Pacific theatre goes. But his latest book um is just called simply Rampage, and we've already had a chat off air about how that title came about. But it just... um it, there's, I don't think we were saying, I just think it's perfect because there's nothing else you could have called it. Because this book deals with um, the battle for Manila in 1945. And uh yeah, it's it's a tough read. But I it's one of those books that you look at when you're a historian and you go, wow, someone needed to tell that story, James. Um, but then you think, my God, rather him than me.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a rough story. It's one of those, I don't think I appreciated how bad it was until I was sort of neck deep in the archives and going through the victim accounts that I really kind of realized, you know, uh, sort of what have I gotten myself into?
2: Yeah. <laughs> so you're in South Carolina. Uh, we ha- we've already had some guests from the Carolinas on. Um, I love both of those states. Uh, tell us what life is like in Charleston right now.
0: It's great. No, uh, minus this whole pandemic that's got us all sort of locked up inside, particularly now because you know, here we are in April and it's 85 degrees out and sunny. And, you know, I live just a couple miles from the beach. And so this is normally the time of the year when, um, when we would be, you know, out and about and, um, you know, enjoying spring and whatnot. And here we are instead stuck inside doing zoom classrooms with the kids and uh, kind of admiring the beauty through the window so. and not
2: only that but have you not this uh, is the horror of horrors um you have now become a math teacher
0: yeah, true um and you know it's amazing i've got a, a 10 and a, and a 12 year old and it's amazing how much i've forgotten from elementary and junior high school you know i'd sort of purged my brain of uh, multiplying fractions and uh you know converting uh you know our units of measurement to the metric system and uh wow so i'm, I'm kind of not only am i still trying to work and study world war ii history but i'm also having to sort of relearn the uh, beauty of my childhood math and science <laughs>
2: whilst uh, so. trying not to look dumb in front of your kids right
0: Oh, yeah, no, they, I, they, they've they long since realized how dumb that really is. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, let's get into the book. Um, Alina, start us off.
1: So we're here to talk about Manila, so we might as well start about what Manila was like before the war. Can you tell us a little bit more about it?
0: Yeah, you know, Manila was, and, you know, a lot of people sort of forget this, you know, with the passage of so much time, but, you know, Manila was an in Amer- uh, the Philippines were an American colony that the United States had captured the Philippines along with Cuba during the Spanish-American War. But unlike Cuba, which uh, the U.S. granted independence, uh, America decided to hang on to the Philippines because of its great global position. It's really sort of the, if you think of the Pacific there, uh, kind of like a bicycle wheel, it's sort of the central hub, if you will. And and, uh, and American businesses recognize this tremendous opportunity in the markets there with China, India, Malaysia. Uh, and so the U.S. decided to hang on to it. And after several hundred years of Spanish rule, um, America decided to sort of put its own imprint on the Philippines. And so we brought over municipal planner Daniel Burnham, who... Uh, spent six weeks in the Philippines and for folks who may not be aware of, of who he is, Daniel Burnham was this great architect and municipal planner here in the United States at that time period. He helped with Chicago and the creation of its Lakeshore Drive. He helped San Francisco. He designed, um, Union Station, which is the big transit hub right there at Capitol Hill in Washington, which is still in use today. Uh, he helped with the redo of the National Mall in Washington and designed New York's uh, famous Flatiron Building, which is still there today. So he was just really this great thinker in his time period. So he came over to the Philippines, and he sort of laid out a blueprint for how Manila uh, could grow. and And over the course of the next 40 years, uh Manila really developed into this small slice of America and Asia. It had these great neoclassical buildings, its legislature, its city hall, its post office, which looked like they could have literally been transplanted from Washington, DC and dropped right into the heart of uh of Manila. Uh there's also tremendous parks. He developed a, a Bay Shore Drive there called Dewey Boulevard at the time, which was just like in Chicago's Lakeshore Drive, and so uh, so really the city had begun to blossom, and in addition to having a lot of American service members who were there uh, as part of the defense of the Philippines, a number of American business um, executives and managers, and folks like that, settled there as well, um, so it had this sort of thriving expatriate community um, there in the Philippines as well, and, you know, had a great a great quality of life you know sort of outside of the american rat race at that time it was situated in tropics but it had a lot of the, you know the, the comforts that uh the modern comforts you know air conditioning was making its way there uh, department stores golf courses swimming pools air conditioned movie theaters so it really was a uh, uh, a pretty magical place um, all the way up of course then until the outbreak of world war 2
2: and then um, the the big catalyst for Manila, um, as it turns out, is Pearl Harbor, isn't it? Um, how does what happens after Pearl Harbor, and how does um, Manila come under Japanese control?
0: Absolutely. So you know, in, in addition to the attack on Pearl Harbor, the Japanese invaded the Philippines, and uh, and MacArthur and his troops held off on the uh, Bataan Peninsula and also on the fortified island of Corregidor out in the bay. But the the speed with which the Japanese had advanced meant that literally thousands of American civilians, um, these were the business executives, their families, you know, their wives, their children, uh, uh, were all trapped in the Philippines. And so MacArthur had hoped to spare Manila, which at that time was called the Pearl of the Orient because it was such a great city. So he evacuated all of his forces outside the city, and as a result of that, the Japanese came in, and on January 2nd, 1942, just three weeks really into the war, they seized Vanilla. And uh, and so all of the uh, the American troops were all fighting in the jungles and the mountains of Bataan and, and and whatnot. All the civilians were trapped in the city. And so the Japanese rounded up all the American civilians, and they placed them in internment camps. And um, The largest of these, of course, was at the University of Santo Tomas, which is a uh, school, you know, that's several centuries old. It's, in fact, it's still there today. And they turned this, uh, 50 acre college campus into a huge internment camp. And at its peak, it had over 4,000 civilians there. I eventually settled at about 3,700 civilians was about how many were there uh, for the majority of the war. And these were civilians that came from all walks of life. You had everything from business executives to, to accountants to uh, teachers and golf pros and and of course uh, some 500 children were there as well and so uh, the Americans then, the troops were out on the Bataan uh, peninsula fighting and as the uh, America could not get any reinforcements to them so Bataan eventually fell in April of 1942, uh, the last of the American troops held off on the island of Corregidor which is a 1700 acre island there off in manila bay until may and at that point the uh, all of the american organized forces uh fell and the japanese at that point had conquered the philippines
1: so you mentioned macarthur and that he was there why was it agonizing for him to escape what did he leave behind
0: yeah and that's the thing you know macarthur's is sort of this lion like figure in american military history and you know and he was this you know MacArthur had this huge personal familial connection to the Philippines, and that his father, Arthur MacArthur, who had been this heroic war figure fighting for the Union during the American Civil War, had actually helped capture Manila during the Spanish-American War, and he'd served actually as one of the early military governors in the Philippines. And so, his father had served there and helped capture it. MacArthur, after his graduation from West Point in uh, 1903, his first assignment. Was in the Philippines and he had gone back over the years on multiple times in positions of greater influence and and authority, uh, all the way up until 1935 when he eventually retired. Um, you know, he'd been the America's uh, top soldier, its chief of staff. And then as he finished up his assignment there and retired, he took a position with the Philippines to go back over there, which the United States had in agreed to allow the Philippines to become independent in 1946. And during that transition process, as they were preparing for that independence, they were looking to build up uh, their military. And so their president, Manuel Kizan, had a who had approached MacArthur and said, we can think of no better person to help advise us than you. And so MacArthur took the job and in 1935 went back to the Philippines, uh, where he lived at that time up until the outbreak of war. And his job was to essentially to help prepare the Philippine military for independence and to be able to defend itself. Uh, and this was a pretty pivotal period in MacArthur's life personally. He had grown up, his parents had been sort of, uh, very overwhelming figures in his life, if you will, both his mother and his father. And at this point in his life, both of them are deceased. He's, he, on his trip over in 1935, he meets Gene MacArthur, who's this, uh, beautiful young southern brunette who he falls in love with and his um his mother actually had come initially with him in early 1935 but she passed away in the philippines soon after they arrived there and so uh and so gene really comforts him during this this period so they get married he has a son and so really for macarthur you know who'd spent his whole life you know he was the son of a military officer he'd grown up bouncing around the united states different bases Uh, He'd spent his own career sort of pinballing around the the world. Manila really becomes sort of the closest thing he has to a hometown. You know, he's outside of a Washington officialdom. He's outside the pressure of his sort of overbearing parents. He finally meets the woman uh, he falls in love with. He has his son. And for the first time in life in the Philippines, he's truly happy. And then, of course, the war breaks out, and the Japanese take all of that away from him. And so for MacArthur, the abandonment of Manila and the abandonment of the Philippines is incredibly personal. Because for him, it's not just some post. It's not just some, you know, assignment he's got. I mean, Manila is home. In fact, he lives atop the Manila Hotel, which is this landmark hotel opened in 1911. Still there today, overlooking the bay. I mean, beautiful property lives in the penthouse up there. And there he's got his father's Civil War medals. He's got his library of over 10,000 volumes. He's got his son's tricycle and tanks and toys. And, and they've got the Christmas tree up in the corner of the uh, parlor. Uh, and then, of course, he has to evacuate it all. And they leave so fast when they retreat out to the island of Corregidor that they don't even take down the Christmas tree. Uh, so MacArthur, you know, Manila is a uh it's it's a real personal story for him.
2: Does he get out? Um and oh well of course he gets out. Oh, let me say that again. So he gets out. Um please tell exactly. me he managed to take his dad's medals with him.
0: No, they in fact oh. they only took two suitcases worth of materials with them. And so uh and what's fascinating is the Japanese came in and they inventoried his house afterwards. And and I've got a copy of that inventory and it's Thirty some pages long, and it's a fascinating. It has like, you know, how many uh, pocket squares he had, uh, handkerchiefs. You know, it was, like, it was almost two hundred. It has, you know, how many pearl necklaces his wife had. It, uh, it itemizes his, his military uh, uh, insignia and medals and things like that. It Even they even itemize his son's toys. Sign. Um, it really is. It's just such a fascinating document to look at. And so, if you go, for instance, today. And of course, that home was later destroyed in the war. If you go to the MacArthur Memorial in Norfolk, Virginia, which is sort of the, where his papers are and his artifacts, there's very little there that predates 1945 because pretty much everything that the MacArthur's owned was destroyed during the war. There.
2: Wow. So, so how does he get out?
0: Yeah. So MacArthur, um, when he declares Manila an open city, he evacuates. It's to the fortified island of Corregidor, and Corregidor is a fascinating place in itself. It's the uh, a 1,700 acre island, 27 miles out in the water, and over the, it had been sort of an old garrison, and between the wars, America built it up with uh, artillery and guns, and they dug a series of tunnels inside one of the mountains there on the island that had become his headquarters and uh they had a hospital in there and offices and everything like that. And so of course this this island is coming under constant bombardment and artillery fire from the Japanese. And the, Roosevelt is terrified that um MacArthur that it's gonna fall and MacArthur's going to be captured and that it would be this PR disaster for America to have this great general um, you know, put on trial or taken to Tokyo as a prisoner. And so he orders MacArthur to evacuate uh, and so MacArthur leaves on um, March eleventh at night um, in a secret plot with using torpedo boats basically to sneak him because the Japanese have blockaded the area around there, so they have to sort of break this blockade and they 've got to run him about five hundred miles south of there to another island where a uh, plane is going to take him to australia and so it 's an incredibly uh, exciting mission, if you will, and with, with great stakes and of course MacArthur, and his wife, his son and key members of his staff all leave and they're successful and they break out and they eventually end up in Australia where he vows famously i shall return and of course you know looking at that those three words through the lens of his personal connection to Manila his family's artifacts and his home and whatnot it takes on such a greater symbolism uh, i think than it, than it than a lot of people normally attribute it
1: Apart from the internment camps that you mentioned previously, could you tell us a little bit more about the occupation? It was incre- it was an incredibly grim experience, wasn't it?
0: It was, and, it, and it's a story that I don't think gets enough attention um, when we look back on World War II in the Pacific, because the Japanese occupation of the Philippines was an incredibly brutal time, and, and by that I mean it, the Japanese had come in, they took over Manila, they they, they looted all the department stores, they. Uh, they, they went through and they took all the houses away from like the grand houses away from people and their vehicles, their cars. Um, they swiped all the food out of the warehouses. They left the fields to rot. Uh, and of course during this time period, nothing was imported. So you couldn't get medicines and things like that. And so over time, and you have to remember this was a three-year occupation over, over those years, the economy began to just totally collapse and crumble, um, there were no jobs. There was, uh, you know, I, it developed a sort of a bartering system where people would literally, uh, they had these big markets and people would just trade things to survive. And as the years passed and as things got worse, the really the social fabric in the Philippines just began to totally unravel, uh, particularly in the cities. And people outside in the provinces could grow their own food and, and were better able to subsist. But in Manila, in the capital there, it was much grimmer. And so much so that by by 1944, by the end of 1944, literally 500 people were starving to death a day in Manila, and people had gotten so desperate that they were literally they were abandoning their children to orphanages. Uh, they were selling their children. Uh, in fact, I've seen in some of the depositions I read of, from survivors where you know, children were being sold for about a thousand pesos uh, a piece. People resorted to robbing graves, literally taking the eyeglasses off of corpses, uh, even the dentures, uh, the clothing. I mean, anything that could be bartered or sold to buy a fistful of rice to survive.
2: Uh, There's an awful, awful, horrible anecdote about a girl with a lump in her stomach, isn't there, that shows you how bad it was?
0: Absolutely, yes. And it's from one of the diary entries of one of the Americans there because the Americans at Santa Tomas were starving equally at this point. You know, the camp had been cut off and the Japanese were not providing enough supplies. And so the, uh, the, the internees were wasting away there too. And there's a diary from Louise Goldthorpe and she writes that she could feel a lump in her stomach and she was alarmed and then she realized that what she was actually feeling was her backbone. That she lost so much weight that she could literally feel her backbone through the front of her body. So. And at the camp, too, I'll add, one of the, you know, the, the, the internees there were, you know, they literally, to survive, were eating the dogs, the cats, the pigeons. Uh, I even found in one of the diary entries there, uh talk about how people were buying rats. And So you imagine being so hungry that you're willing to, to eat a rat, and then imagine being so hungry that you're willing to pay to eat that rat. So uh, it really just captures, I think, that horror of how bad, conditions had become uh, in manila um, later in the war
1: can i bring in another character into this who was tommy yamashita can yeah. you tell us a little bit more about him
0: yeah he is sort of the japanese equivalent of douglas macarthur if you will and he's ultimately macarthur's adversary when macarthur comes back to the philippines to try to redeem his earlier promise and yamashita was a uh, uh had been a um a very successful Japanese general early in the war. In fact, he had taken uh, Malaysia and Singapore from the British and he earned the nickname Tiger of Malaya. And he'd done it in, a, in very quickly and with a uh, lesser-sized force. And uh, so it was a pretty stunning accomplishment. But he had, uh, at, at the time, he'd become a very popular general in Japan. And as a result, he sort of, uh, Hideki Tojo, who was the war minister and prime minister, felt threatened by Yamashita, and so rather than give him a choice assignment after his success in Singapore, he actually banishes him all the way up to Manchuria. And he, he really parts him on the war sidelines, uh, and so he's he's gone for so long and he's out of sight for so long that people actually speculate in Japan that he's died. And so it's uh, he sits out much of the war until the summer of 1944 when Japan's. Has this huge reversal of fortunes and, is, uh, and loses the Mariana Islands, of Guam, Saipan, and Tinian. And this is a, at this point the Japanese know that the Americans are now within bombing range of Tokyo. So this is a pretty dramatic loss for them. And at that point, uh, Tojo is ousted, and a new prime minister is brought in. And with Tojo's ouster, Yamashita is his career is resurrected and this former great general from the early days of the war is then sent to the Philippines. And his job is to turn Manila and turn the Philippines into a tar pit to bog down MacArthur and American forces, who at this point are en route north to Japan. And so he's really, uh, and so it really sets the stage for this great battle between these two uh, tremendous generals, Japanese General Yamashita and MacArthur, you know, fighting over the Philippines. And so that's kind of sort of sets up the battle, if you will.
2: Can you just um, briefly just so because obviously the Pacific there is so much lesser known than Europe. Put the battle for Manila into the context in the whole Pacific campaign.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, so MacArthur's driven out of the Philippines at the, the beginning of the war, and he escapes to um, to Australia. And of course, at this point, you, there begins this this sort of dual thrust by the Allied forces. You have the American Navy, uh, which is pushing across central the central Pacific in what is frequently known as the island hopping campaign, in which they're sort of they're trying to retake islands and, and sort of close in, if you will, on the Japanese Empire. Meanwhile, MacArthur and the army are pushing north from Australia. And so, you know, there's of course the Battle for the Wall Canal and Solomon Islands, of course, and they fight their way north across New Guinea and, uh, as well. And so all of this really is to sort of push in on Japan's uh, defensive perimeters that's sort of kind of like a noose, if you will, tightening around the neck of the Japanese empire. And so the Philippines is one of these last great Conquests of the America that sort of stand in the way of the United States and and uh, the Empire of Japan and the Japanese mainland. You know, the Americans at this point have captured the Mariana Islands, Guam, Saipan, and which has put them in bombing range. Uh, the Navy is now able to see pretty much within J- Japanese waters and, uh, and and launch naval raids. And, of course, MacArthur is now setting himself up for, you know, bringing the army up there. So these two, these two forces that have been thrusting across the Central Pacific and up from the South are kind of at a point where they can merge and, uh, and begin this final press on the, uh, on the mainland of
1: Japan. MacArthur passing vows to get back Manila.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When do the Americans actually decide to take it back?
0: Yeah, and that's a great story too, because, you know, the American Navy, well, and, and by that, I am specifically mean the head of the American Navy at that time, Admiral Ernest King, he really wanted to bypass the Philippines, because, you know, the Navy had been successfully executing this this policy of sort of island hopping, which they would take an island and then they would, you know, leap over the next one. They would leave the Japanese troops that were on that sort of island that they bypassed to quote wither on the vine. In this way, they didn't have to tie up a lot of resources and taking every single island, and they could just leap frog their way across the Pacific. And um, Admiral King thought that the Philippines that they could the Americans could skip the Philippines and take Taiwan, um, which at the time was called Formosa. Which is of course north of the Philippines, and they could just let the Philippines wither on the vine. And MacArthur was adamantly opposed to this idea. Remember, MacArthur had lived in the Philippines. He was very close with Philippine leaders. You know, he had his personal connection there. And he had also made this promise, I shall return. And so he was adamant that the America not skip out on that promise and go back. And so there's this big conference. FDR calls this conference in Hawaii in the summer of nineteen forty four, and they settle on this Ocean front mansion for a, uh, to sort of debate strategy. And Admiral King doesn't go in person, but he sends Chester Nimitz, who's his Pacific Fleet commander. And, uh, and Nimitz to advocate the Navy's position. And Nimitz actually sees sort of both sides of it, if you will. He's not as married to the skipping the Philippines, uh, process as, uh, as Admiral King is. And of course MacArthur then comes to argue the, uh, his position. Now, MacArthur, in his memoir and whatnot, likes to make out that he was sort of blindsided and he shows up in Hawaii. He's not exactly sure why he's been summoned. And, and so uh, he feels like he's sort of uh, at a disadvantage to the Navy who had these charts and stacks of documentation and maps and whatnot. But the reality is, and we know this because of MacArthur's pilot's diary, that he knew full well what he was getting into. And he actually, on his flight all the way across the Pacific to Hawaii, He's actually rehearsing his arguments. He's, he's going over them with his pilot and he's sort of getting his position down pat so that when he gets there, he is, uh, he's fully prepared. And, and he essentially makes, in the end, a, 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 a political argument to Roosevelt, which is, you know, Roosevelt is up for re-election, and, um, he says, basically pulls the president aside and he says, you know, if, if you don't let me go back to the Philippines, if you don't let us redeem this promise, I think that the American public will be so upset by this that they'll hold it against you in the election. And Roosevelt was uh, was nothing if not a very political animal, and so uh, and so that uh, you know that sort of struck a chord with him, if you will. And so in the end, MacArthur gets his way, and he's allowed to go back and retake the Philippines. But MacArthur, in, in addition to his argument, he really also made a, a very accurate, I think, moral argument, which was the Philippines was an American colony and even though it was slated for independence in 1946, it had been taken away from the United States, and that the Americans owed it to the Filipinos as well as to the uh, those American executives and their families who were all caught up in these internment camps to return and liberate them as soon as possible. And that time had arrived, and to bypass them would be a grave moral injustice, if you will. And that, that was essentially part of MacArthur's argument.
2: Um so the Japanese aren't particularly interested in defending Manila, are they? And it, when the Americans do go in, it's over quickly in terms of any sort of nominal resistance. They know within a week, the Japanese, that they're they've not going to hold the city, don't they?
0: Yeah, they. you know, Yamashita actually, and there, there's a divide in Japanese leadership. You've got Yamashita, who's sort of the overall commander for the Philippines. And so he, he doesn't see any real strategic value to the city of Manila which there really wasn't outside of its waterfront. It had a big anchorage and port there where um, Navy ships could tie up. And so beyond its waterfront, it didn't have much of a strategic advantage. It had a lot of liabilities. That there were a lot of civilians there and mouths to feed and things like that. So he he decides that his best tactic is to pull out of the city and go up into the mountains and the jungles and to fight a guerrilla war. Uh, and, and and so he pulls out. Now, he there is a... A Navy Admiral, uh, Sanji Iwabuchi, who is job is, he's left behind, and his job is to blow up the waterfront and to render its few strategic assets and, and sort of wipe them out and make them liabilities. Um, and Iwabuchi takes y- Yamashita's orders that, you know, hey, anything we can do to slow down the Americans is a good thing. And he really takes that liberally. And he decides that rather than evacuate the city, He's going to stay and he's going to fortify Manila and he's going to turn it into an urban uh, battle, like a, a Stalingrad of the Pacific, if you will. And he, um, so they began to um, plant landmines. They began to uh, booby trap intersections and fortify a lot of these concrete buildings, these same buildings that the Americans had helped uh, design and build the, uh, you know, the the, the ones designed to withstand the earthquakes and the typhoons that uh, that, that batter this area. So these were the really small fortresses, if you will. And so the Japanese went inside these buildings and they dug wells in the basements of them so that they they buried food stores. So they could have a long siege there. They uh, they took passageways and they built um, staggered walls so that any advancing forces would have to sort of weave between them. Um, so they really prepared um, to make a huge urban stand uh, for the Americans. And it's something that the Americans, I mean, MacArthur didn't anticipate. MacArthur really thought that the Japanese would do exactly which, what he did, which is abandon the city, and, uh, and and which Yamashita had originally planned to do. And so when the Americans get there, uh, you know, MacArthur is not expecting a battle. In fact, he's told his headquarters staff to begin planning his liberation parade. Uh, and they're picking the Jeep assignments where all the senior officers are gonna, gonna, gonna ride and bland out the, uh, the, the route of the parade. It's gonna go back in front of the Manila Hotel, MacArthur's old home there. And so he's really stunned when the, this battle breaks out and it's far more intense and far more hellacious than anything he had anticipated. Uh, and it's a real, the, the American troops have to really learn to adapt on the fly as well. I mean, these guys were used to fighting, uh, you know, on beaches and in jungles and suddenly they're thrown into a major modern city where they're having to fight, you know, block by block, you know, uh, building by building and even room by room to try and sort of dig out these Japanese troops who are really well entrenched in the city. And so it becomes a, uh, it becomes really a hellacious urban battle. Um, the troops quickly learn that one of the most valuable weapons in a fight like this is a flamethrower. Uh, they also start using satchel charges and grenades, and it's just a really, uh, uh, just a gruesome, grueling fight.
1: So this is what becomes and is referred to as the orgy of mass murder.
0: Yeah, and that begins, really, what has happened is the Americans are coming into the city. The Japanese start rounding up people that are suspected guerrillas, uh, and they start killing them because they know that when the Americans get into the city that these guerrillas are going to join forces with the Americans and it's going to make it harder for the Japanese troops. And you have to remember there are about 17,000 Japanese troops in the city under Iwabuchi. And so as the Americans are coming into the city they start rounding up those suspected guerrillas. And it tends and, and it spills over from people they suspected guerrillas into former police officers, constables and people and sort of you know those kinds of trades. Now, as the battle is going on as the Americans are advancing and they're pushing pretty quickly into the city, on February 9th the Americans reach the city on February 3rd, 1945. On February 9th Iwabuchi really realizes that the city is going to fall, that all of his efforts to sort of fortify and whatnot, uh, you know, the southern and northern parts of the city, they're all collapsing, and that it's going to, um, you know, they're going to be overrun. And so at this point, the battle for Manila really takes a very evil turn in in that it goes more from a battle over one of Asia's great cities, devolves into one of the worst, you know, human Atrocities and massacres of World War II. In fact, uh, American war crimes investigators later identified 27 major atrocities that took place inside Manila during this time period. They, uh, the Japanese would literally, they would take infants, they would throw them up in the air and try to skewer them on the tips of their bayonet. They sexually assaulted hundreds of women. They, uh, they burned entire neighborhoods. They locked people inside buildings and set them on fire. I mean, it was just a really, just a absolute mayhem uh and it really echoed what had happened earlier in the war with the rape of nanking King. Uh, but it played out here you know nanking Man and manila in a lot of ways kind of bookend world war 2 and the atrocities uh in the pacific
2: um just a few things cuz i i really want to kind of if you like pay tribute to these people that were victims of this mm-hmm. firstly um, tell us to what extent, cause, cause I've read it in your book that this was planned activity and not just this overspill of rage and hatred. Um, but it's actually ordered and planned by the Japanese. Um, and that there's no distinction when it comes to victims, is there with race, nationality, class? Um, and then we can look at a couple of the particular stories that you told.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And there's, you know, there were. Efforts made in the war crimes trials at the end of the war to say that this had been sort of spontaneous acts of violence, this you know that had come as these sort of cornered Japanese troops lashed out, and and that's simply not the reality of it. You know, captured battlefield orders uh, that were found in Manila and translated and whatnot show that these atrocities were actually ordered. I mean, these men were you know instructed to carry out this type of violence against these civilians, these non-combatants. Uh, in fact I mean these orders say for example when civilians are scheduled to be killed in order to spare ammunition it's easier to group them all in buildings and set them on fire and uh, or throw them in the river uh, and so this you know this doesn't reflect spontaneity it reflects organization and planning if you will uh, the other thing some of the orders said too was that every anyone on you know battlefield including women and children are to be considered guerrillas and therefore you know they can be killed. So really, you know, they 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 essentially at that point leveled, you know, their 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 ire, if you will, against everyone. So there was no distinction. It wasn't just men. They women, children, everyone was fair game. And and, and that's of course tragically what played out. And as the Americans were closing in on the city, you know, the Japanese were literally using incendiary squads and they were burning these residential areas. And so they were Places where people could hide were getting smaller and smaller, and so um, it really was just this desperate, tragic time.
1: They made use of cans of gasoline, didn't they?
0: Yeah, they did. I mean, the Japanese. I mean, they really. Um, I mean, they used gasoline to burn things. They uh, and they burned their victims. Um, you know, I mean, I, I really the creativity and sort of the horror of this stuff is. I mean. It's pretty mind-blowing. Uh, one, of the, I think one of the ones that really stands out in my mind is the Japanese took this house on Singalong Street, which is still a road in, in Manila today. It was a residential two-story house, and they went up to the second floor of this house, and they cut a hole in the floor. And then they went through the surrounding neighborhood, and they gathered up all these men. They blindfolded 200 of these guys, and then they would lead them in individually, one after the other, take them into this home, up to the second floor where they cut this hole. It forced these blindfolded men to kneel and then a Japanese um, soldier would use a sword and he would cut off the head of the, uh, of the victim. And then the head would then fall through the hole and they'd push the body and it would tumble down this hole. Uh, and they did this for an entire day until they literally filled up the downstairs of this home with bodies. And what's amazing is that nine men actually survived this. And the reason being is it's really hard to cut off lots and lots of heads over and over and over again. I mean, it takes a lot of strength, a lot of endurance to be able to do that. And when you're running it like an assembly line, sometimes the sword gets stuck in that strong muscle you have at the back of the neck. And so rather than pull the sword out and do it again, they just assumed these men would die of their injuries and kick them down the hole. Well, nine of them survived. One of them drew a help.
2: picture, didn't he? That's how Yeah, you yeah ever- one of them.
0: One of them sketched a picture of what it was like and, and, and uh and they gave these accounts to war crimes investigators. And the Americans after the war photographed their injuries and these photos are just horrific to look at. And then they went out and the house at this point had burned, but they went out and by counting skulls, the Americans were able to determine that two hundred men were decapitated in that house.
2: It's just and and there's there's big um atrocities like that and then there's the random small ones. I mean, tell us about Corazon Noble and what happened. She was an actress, wasn't she? What happened to her baby? Yeah. It's just awful.
0: She yeah. Um she was this great actress and uh in the Philippines in their cinema. And so she and her uh she had a ten month old baby and so she and her family and brothers and uh, one of her cousins had all sought refuge at the Red Cross, you know, in Manila. And of course if anywhere should be safe during a battle, it's the Red Cross headquarters, and so uh, you know, dozens and dozens of, of refugees had sort of piled into this Red Cross headquarters, and the uh, and they had a doctor there who was doing you know patching people up for their injuries, and a couple of nurses that were helping him and whatnot. And so then you know, there they are, all huddled there, waiting for this battle to pass. And then these Japanese Marines storm the uh, Red Cross. About four of them come in there, and they literally go room by room through this building and they're shooting and bayoneting these men women and children and Corazon noble she she's got her her ch- child with her and she she hides she tries to hide behind sort of a filing cabinet if you will with her with her infant and the Japanese see her there and they shoot and they, they hit her in the elbow which is protruding out and she collapses down and she's trying and she tries to hide her um, her daughter underneath her and the Japanese come over and they stand above her. And they start bayoneting her through her body and the bayonet blade gets through her body and into her infant. And as a result of that, they, she survives, you know, but her daughter dies. And, um, it's just total tragedy. In fact, she, um, she ultimately comes back and she's sort of the star witness in the war crimes trial afterwards. She's the prosecution's opening witness.
2: There's uh, that, um, testimony, isn't there, where she says that she was lying there. Trying to put yeah. her baby's intestines back inside her body.
0: Absolutely. I mean, it's it's horrific, you know. And so, uh, so, and later on in life, she actually, in 1947, I believe it was, she, she, uh, played a character who was a survivor of atrocities in, in one of the Philippine movies mm. afterwards. But, uh, but yeah, it's, but those kinds of stories, uh, they play out throughout Manila during this, this time period. And, uh, you know, so you've got these, these major massacres like what happened at Singalong Street or what happened at the German Club, which was a big social hall in Manila where 500 people were literally burned to death. And then you have these more intimate massacres like what happens, you know, in the Red Cross or what happened a lot of times. Japanese were going through the streets, they'd find a family in a bomb shelter and they'd throw grenades inside. You know, in them there. So you had, you know, large scale massacres and small scale massacres that took place.
1: Listening to you talk about this is reminding me exactly what you said earlier about the rape of Nanking and the, the atrocities there. I mean, it's, it's just repeat, the history is repeating itself literally within a matter of years.
0: It is. And you know, and these kinds of, these kinds of horror stories, you know, what happened in Manila, what happened in Nanking, these were not, you know, exceptions to the rule. These were really the rule. I mean, these types of atrocities. A lot of times follow the Imperial Japanese Army. I mean, you saw it in Nanking, you saw it in Manila, you saw it in the wake of the Doolittle Raid, which 250,000, uh, men, women, and children were killed in China, uh, as, as in reprisals for the Amer- allowing the Americans to bomb the Japanese homeland. So, you know, uh, Yamashita's forces had done similar things after the fall of Singapore. You know, they killed thousands of, uh, of Chinese, um, there in the, uh, in Singapore. So it, sadly, this stuff played out a lot across Asia.
1: You mentioned the Red Cross earlier. Um, Wasn't there something about a ruse with the Red Cross flag to lure people out?
0: Yeah, there was, actually. The Japanese, you know, they were – I mean, they, they actually used the Red Cross flag and planted it in a yard is a is a way to sort of lure people out of the wreckage because people were hiding in the rubble. They were hiding in bomb shelters. They were looking, you know, trying to find ways to be safe. And it's important to remember, I mean, Manila, just to paint a picture of it for you at this time period, okay, much of it's on fire. It's burning. It's smoking. You know, there's huge artillery fires. So, I mean, imagine you can't even see the sun. I mean, there's so much smoke that even in the middle of the day, the sun is just a fiery red ball in the sky. You know, and you're smelling the cordite, you're smelling the fire. The soundtrack of this battle is going to be the thunder of artillery, of tank fire, and whatnot. So it's this chaotic environment. And so amid all of this, the Japanese plant this Red Cross flag in the middle of this vacant lot. And they wait for the – because the people are going to see it and think, ah, oh, the Red Cross is here, safety, you know, and they're going to flock to that flag. And, of course, they use that as a way to lure people in so that they can then Killed him. And so, uh, again, another one of those just horrible stories.
2: Um, the city is secured on the 3rd of March, isn't it? Um, what's MacArthur's reaction to what he finds when he enters Manila?
0: Yeah, you know, the city at, at this point really, it's just, a, it looks like a wasteland. I mean, by the time the battle ends, 29 days after it started, um, 600 blocks of the city are just flat. Um, you know, and, and it's and it's not just you know it's it's, it's um, eleven thousand buildings, banks, churches, neighborhoods, schools. Um, you know, it's everything's gone. It's 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 the uh, museums, the statues, it's the uh, archives, the hospitals. I mean, you really, it's just a picture of desolation and wasteland macarthur comes back in like other people you, you can't even orient yourself in the city at this point i mean any familiar landmark is gone or blown apart there's just there's some facade standing um you know some chimneys standing things like that but in general so much of it's just piles of rubble that you can't even really tell where you're going uh and so it's a disorienting place to be and then of course at the same time, throughout all this rubble are going to be, you know, the, the victims and the bodies. and So it's just, it's, it's a really gruesome place, uh, to come back to. And of course, MacArthur comes back to check on his home as well. And of course he, uh, the Manila hotel has taken heavy fire during all of this. And so when he gets back, he finds that his own home where he'd left behind all of his artifacts and the mementos of a lifetime. Has been burned up and destroyed, and so um, so the battle for him is a uh, it's a very it's a great personal loss as well.
2: Um, Can you also as well just link that into um, how the Americans decide to um, instigate an investigation?
0: Yeah, you know MacArthur, as as as, even as the battle's unfolding, the Americans are coming across these atrocity sites know, yeah, they're coming across spots where they're finding a home full of all these people who have been decapitated or, or bayoneted. And so these reports are making their way back to MacArthur. So on February 17th, really just two weeks into the battle, MacArthur orders all cases of atrocities to be investigated. And his staff takes that very literally. And so as soon as the battle over is over, they really realize they're looking almost less at a battlefield and more at a crime scene. And so just army of... Um, of investigators fan out through this rubble after the battle's over and start interviewing the survivors. And these interviews are conducted in, you know, field hospitals and, you know, primary schools, like literally any building that still has a roof over it at this point was turned into some sort of makeshift aid shelter. And so they go out and they conduct literally thousands of interviews. Um, and they photograph the wounds, they sketch out the atrocity sites and, uh, and, and they really created I and mean, Voluminous amounts of firsthand accounts of this. In fact, when I was researching this, I spent the better part of a summer at the uh, National Archives up in College Park, Maryland, here in the U.S. And uh, I mean, these were just banker's boxes worth of statements. And uh, I digitized, I think, about sixty-five thousand pages of records, mm. uh, trial transcripts, witness statements, photographs, um, really capturing that. And so, at, through those statements. You know, I was really able to recreate so much of the horror that happened in Manila on just a, you know, a minute by minute basis. And these statements were sometimes done just two weeks afterwards, three weeks afterwards. So they're really raw personal accounts.
2: With the victim accounts. statements, just as a sidebar really quickly, I'm, I'm interested. Did you find anything about the men that did it and carried out the atrocities really? and how they process what they'd done?
0: Yeah, you know, they, they were, the Japanese had about 17,000 troops in Manila, and uh, all but a few hundred of them were killed in the battle. And those that were um, survived were often men left behind on the battlefield who they thought were. You know, the Japanese had an order to kill anybody. Don't leave anybody behind. So if somebody's really badly wounded, kill them. Uh, but these were guys that were left behind often because they were so badly wounded that it was better to save the ammunition and let them die on their own within a few hours and, and uh, than to waste the ammo. And what happened is some of those guys survived. And in most of those accounts they denied any any of the uh, knowledge of the atrocities and things like that. But that said, there are there are some accounts from some of these men who survived and some of them were later witnesses in some of the trials who talked about being ordered to do these things. They talked about uh what it was like and some of their diaries were found too, in which they talked about I think one of those most haunting ones is like, you know, how can I ever for you know I'm paraphrasing, of course, but it's like, yeah. How will my mother ever be able to forgive me for this? And, uh, you know, things like that. So there are accounts in there of, of, uh, of remorse from some of these, some of these men for what they had done. So not a lot of these things survive, but there are a few.
1: But not everybody is willing to talk though. I'm thinking, for example, um, cases where you see extreme sexual violence.
0: Yes, no, they, they're not. And, uh, particularly if you remember the Philippines is a really devoutly Catholic country at this time. Uh, it still is. And, uh, and, and also Manila was kind of a small town. I mean, there were, the, the pre-war census was about 620,000 people. So it was really a small town. Everybody kind of knew everybody. And a lot of the victims of sexual assault were, um were, they were taken out of a couple of neighborhoods. And these were sort of the high class neighborhoods. So the victims tended to be from wealthier families and established societal families. And so the combination of society fears and Catholicism and, and uh, deeply religious views and also, you know, some of these women were married and whatnot really prevented many of them from wanting to testify about it uh, to war crimes investigators. And I'll tell you a fascinating story. Uh, so, you know, I was going through these depositions, and, you know, in some of these depositions, some of the women, of course, did Many of the women testified about what had happened, but a lot of them said, hey, I'm telling you guys because you're the investigators of this, but I don't, I haven't told anybody. I haven't told my husband. I haven't told my family and I don't ever intend to tell them what happened to me. And so I quoted in the book one of those depositions from one of those survivors. And, um, and so, you know, after the book came out, I got this email from a woman and she said, um, uh, you know, my uh, my brother called me a couple days ago and said, you've got to go get this book. Our mother's in it. And, um, and I was like, oh, no. And I, I totally worried it was going to be one of those cases. And sure enough, she told me her mother was. And her mother was one of the women I quoted in the book saying, I was a victim, and but I haven't told my husband, and I don't ever plan to tell anybody about. And the daughter, her mother's now passed away, but the daughter wrote to me and said, you know, we always suspected that it happened to her, but she would never talk about it. And she said, you know, we're so proud that she had the courage to tell the investigators the truth about what happened.
2: It's just um, incredible so- you lived with it buried like that, though, with the people that loved her most. <laughs>
0: I know, and, and I felt like, I oh, you, you feel horrible. I was, when I got this email, of course, my first instinct was, she's going to be so furious with me that, you know, here's her mother's name quoted with this in this book for people to read. But, you know, but she wasn't. And, she, in fact, you know, I was, I, was, I, was, I was happy to see that she was pleased with her mother for having done that. And, and I'll tell you, it's, I've, I've heard from so many people from this book uh, you know, whose family members are quoted in this book, whose uh, stories are told here. Uh, it's been really, you know, and I've written, you know, this is, that was my fourth book. And really, this has been one of the books, the, the book in which I've had the most engagement from people uh, who have ties to this story. You know, I get emails from people saying, you know, my uncle's quoted in it or my mom's quoted in it. And I've provided lots of folks the depositions from their family members, you know, mm. that you know, here's what they'd said. And whatnot. So, um, and in the Philippines, the book has had a tremendous reception. Uh, you know, I was really lucky. We went and did a book tour over there last year. Uh, went and spoke at universities. Um, we were expecting for the official book launch in Manila that there might be about a hundred people there. Uh, Three hundred people turned up. I mean, it really—it's uh, just—it's just had a really great, and I've been really heartened to, to see that. And because you know, the Battle of Manila is still a really raw subject for a lot of people in the Philippines, and I think people in Manila have been really happy that an American writer is you know turned turned turn, you know turned his attention to the, the suffering that they they went through, because the Battle of Manila, you know, it's not. This isn't like it didn't affect just sort of the military-aged male demographic. You know, this was a battle that affected multiple generations. I mean, it left these deep, multi-generational wounds in the families, and uh, and and you know, and those things are still, in a lot of cases, they're still scabbed over and raw. Um, and so, this has given voice to it. And you know, and I chose when I was writing the book, you know, I didn't want to tell just a military story. I wanted to tell a civilian story. I wanted to tell those voices. I wanted to get those quotes from those depositions in this book. And uh, So that we could give those voices Because normally in war stories A lot of times the civilians don't get that voice And um, But this is one where you have A hundred A hundred civilians die For every one US soldier To so me it was I a mean, battle born on the backs Of the men, women and children in Manila
1: I totally and utterly agree uh, Everybody deserves a voice And that's always been my motto for when I do my research That everybody It doesn't matter who they were They all deserve that voice
0: Totally Totally. And civilians are so often overlooked in, in war books and war literature. You know, when, it, when you know, battles take place in cities, you know, I mean, they cause massive amounts of, you know, deaths to you know, non-combatants and destruction. You know, and so I think it's an important voice to recognize.
1: I'm curious to know, were the Japanese made to pay for what they did in Manila?
0: Not really, <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, the Japanese were. I mean, it, it, Japan was so utterly destroyed by the end of World War II. Um, the B twenty nine campaign, um, where well, that was led out of the Mariana Islands, which is actually the subject of a book I'm working on now. So stay tuned for more. Um, <laughs> uh, literally leveled more than sixty Japanese cities, and then of course, that does, you know, th- th- then of course you have Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which often tend to suck up a lot of the oxygen for people who are looking at what happened to Japan, but really the firebombing campaign against Japan's urban industrial areas was far greater in the amount of destruction. I mean, Tokyo was never hit by an atomic bomb, but 56 square miles of the city were burned up in firebombings. Uh, one raid on March 9, 1945, destroyed 16 square miles of the city, killed 104,000 people, uh, and you compare that to, you know, the atomic bomb destroyed about two square miles in Nagasaki, and Hiroshima was a little over four square miles. So it just shows you that the the incendiary campaign against Japan really did far more far more damage. So by the time the war ends, you know, Japan's cities are left in rubble, uh, hundreds of thousands are dead, um, and of course, you know, their their economy is gone. And so, so the U.S. comes in at that point and occupies Japan you know, up until the early 1950s and helped really rebuild Japan. They, you know, break up the conglomerates and uh, help write a constitution and try to sort of stamp out the militarism that had led to there. Uh, and the U.S. followed through with its, you know, pre-war plans to give the Philippines independence. So 1946, the Philippines becomes independent. And uh, then they, then so the Philippines are really left to have to start from scratch with it, you know, with so much destruction and everything on their own. And, uh, while the Americans, uh, you know, helped rebuild Japan. And, that, and that's a, I get that question all the time from Philippine audiences. It's like, you know, well, the Americans helped rebuild Japan and kind of left us on our own. And, and in 1956, the Japanese did come and, and did, um, I think they gave several hundred million dollars to, uh, to the Philippines at that point, which was really just a, uh, a drop in the bucket, if you will, for the amount of destruction that, that took place there. So, uh, but you know, today, all these years later, um, you know, the Japan is, I think, the number one uh, provider of foreign aid to the Phil- to the Philippines, greater even than the United States is now. But, uh, but uh, right after the war, no, there was no real, there was no Marshall Plan to, to rebuild there like there was in, in Europe.
2: And uh, um, in the- terms of Yamashita, uh, he uh, he's hanged, isn't he, as part of all the yes, well, on trial
0: he's put on trial in the first war crimes trial in all of Asia. And he's actually put on trial in the, uh, what is today the ballroom of the United States embassy there in downtown Manila. And you can still go visit that embassy. Let's go see that ballroom. It's really, I've been inside there to see it. It's really, it looks just like it did pretty much. Um, during the, when you look at the photographs and the old um, reels of the, uh, of the trial. So he's put on trial and it's a trial that lasts 32 days. And, um, over t- almost 300 witnesses come out and testify against him over that time period. And in the end, he's found guilty for failing to control his troops and preventing the massive bloodshed that had taken place there. And so he's hanged in early 1946 uh, in Sugarcane Fields, south of Manila.
2: Thank you so much for coming on to talk about this battle with us, um, a battle which we knew nothing about um, before we had this conversation. Um, and I really think it's, it's been longer than one of our normal shows, and it's perhaps been a lot more sombre but it is a story that needs to be told and we're just really thankful that you've brought just some of the insight that's gone into your book um onto one of our podcasts. So thank you so much.
0: My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on.
2: And we uh, we've already tapped you up and we're really hoping to get you back on to talk about the digital raid as well um as we try a broader coverage of the Pacific campaign. Join us tomorrow when we will be uh talking to Sophie Hayes. She has taken on all of your questions about Pompeii uh, is absolutely fascinating and funny as well. Uh, a very different tone to today. Don't forget that you can become a patron of History Hack by going to www.historyhack.podbean.com. Thanks to James, our latest new patron. Um, we really do appreciate all your support and it will help us to keep going in the aftermath of the COVID-19 crisis, um, which we're really keen to do. There now follows a public service announcement.
0: I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you, both.
1: Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil.